investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome, ladies and gents, to episode 63 of the Absolute Return Podcast. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is Friday, April 17th, 2020. Another wild week in the markets. We've kind of had a couple back-to-back weeks where markets are rallying. We're going to talk about what's going on, what happened this week. Off the top, private debt funds, a number of them in Canada, halted redemptions as investors rushed for the exit and asset values held by these private debt funds. They plummeted. Should investors be worried about this when they're getting their funds gated? Trump's art of the oil deal. Will it bring balance to the global market? A coronavirus cure? Remdesivir shows promising results in a clinical trial. And lastly, we're going to touch on a blog post I put out this week, a discussion of the five reasons why merger arbitrage is a must-own investment strategy. But first, we're going to talk about how two of Canada's largest debt funds froze investor redemptions. Now, this in industry parlance is known as gating investors, well, where they request to get their money back. You say no because you're uncomfortable with selling or can't sell. And it's really just, you know, a BS thing that investment managers do. But nonetheless, what they're trying to prevent here is really a stampede of investors running for the exits at the same time, which is clearly... Uh, starting to happen in a lot of these private debt funds. So by halting redemptions, the fund managers keep the investors' money locked up against those investors' wishes. The managers of these funds have halted redemptions in the hope of sidestepping the large losses of invest- on investments they would need to take to sell assets and honor redemptions. And the reason I have such an issue with this is because if we look at the return profiles on a lot of these private debt funds, private mortgage funds, what they're doing is they're artificially smoothing returns and making investors oblivious to the underlying risks and the underlying volatility of the assets held by these private asset funds. I looked at the return profile on one of these funds that actually halted redemptions and it goes for six years, nothing but positive monthly returns. That's right, not even a single negative month uh, within a six-year time frame. They claimed a sharp ratio above seven, no, like, no correlation to the markets, etc., etc. Then all of a sudden, when bad things happen in the market, when there's some volatility, oh, they can't honor redemptions. A lot of these funds are eliminating distributions, etc. And you got to think about why, and perhaps uh, this is the reason. It's because the NAV is made up. The underlying asset values and returns that they're telling investors, since they're not marked to market, they're actually marking to model, basically saying whatever they want are returns. And that's why uh, they disclose, or they say that every month their NAV, their returns are positive. It's going up, which is really just pure fiction. So investors really can't believe that. What they're telling you with this gate, uh, this halting of redemptions, suspension of redemptions, investors can't get their money de- money out because in order for these managers to liquidate, they need to recognize very large losses. That's where the market is. That's the true net asset value. I'd 
estimate, uh, just a rough estimate that if these investment managers were to actually honor redemptions, which is the right thing to do for investors, their net net asset value would decline by 50%, 75% or worse. Time and time again, I see absolute nightmares in these private debt and private mortgage funds where investors look at their statement and see steady rising returns no losses, everything looks great until one day they wake up and it's a calamity, they're bankrupt and the NAV is zero. This comes out of nowhere. I often say that the return profile of these private asset funds sometimes looks like that life of a turkey graph where everything's going swimmingly for the turkey until Thanksgiving, uh, that turkey's life goes to zero, it gets slaughtered and you kind of see the same profile on a lot of these private asset funds. And they've really grown significantly over the past number of years, really just old people looking to generate extra income in what they believe is a low risk manner. But it's it's generally not the case that it's low risk at all. These are typically extremely high risk strategies. But nonetheless, globally, investors have put more than $550 billion into private debt funds over the past five years. And really what I've beefed with here is that managers of private debt and private mortgage funds, they claim low volatility, high returns with low risk and low correlation with traditional asset classes, which clearly is just not the case. I think we're going to see a lot of bad things happen. And, and we've seen it in the past where these illiquid funds, you wake up with no warning and the NAV is down significantly and they're winding up and you get cents back on the dollar. So I really caution investors against private debt funds, whereas they believe that they're shielded from volatility. But in this scenario, volatility can be your friend because if you're invested in a public fund that's in trouble, maybe it's down 50-60%, that will get the alarm bells going off saying, hey, something's wrong here. And that gives you a warning signal to perhaps revisit the investment. Perhaps you want your money out, you redeem, you sell it. So that volatility provides a great warning sign for investors. However, you don't get that in these private debt funds. Everything looks like it's going perfectly well until it's too late and they're down to zero or perhaps something close like that and it's turned into a complete disaster. So, you know, I could go on about this all day, but those are my thoughts on these private debt and private mortgage funds. Investors have really been tricked into this and I just think that it's a horrible thing to do to investors. They want their money back as a manager. You got to sell the asset and the current net asset value, the current price is whatever bid is in the market. That reflects true underlying value. What are your thoughts on this disaster of these debt funds halting redemption? Yeah, I have quite a few thoughts on this uh, as it is quite topical right now. I guess where to start really like this comes down to like the appeal of this is for a lot of investors they just like the yield play and that's whether it be retirees but even even people that are at the accumulation and saving part of part of their uh, financial journey the yield is something that is very easy to explain what isn't explained to these investors is the underlying liquidity of these assets. And so they are somewhat tricked into, you know, believing that as and theoretically, as long as there is enough uh, creations and people buying into these funds, then as long as there's more of them than there are of the uh, people redeeming, there really isn't any issues. It's really only in situations like these that uh, that 
that the underlying liquidity matters. And that's, and, and that's the point, is that's when it really matters uh, for an investment like this. One of the funds, one of their comments were that they'll keep these uh, get the gating in place until there's reasonable visibility on the future direction of the economy and financial, which is <laughs> such an absurd thing to say. Laughable. Uh, yeah, like, you, like it, what, you, you normally have a crystal ball? Like, that's just an absurd thing to say. But as well, I know we were talking about this before, but do these managers still take while they're suspending redemptions? Because, you know, that's, that's a pretty poor look optically when you're forcing investors to stay in this investment while still taking fees out. As well, some of these private lenders, they really highlight their flexibility and they really take pride in not being traditional lenders. So they highlight their flexibility relative to these traditional lenders, the banks, and really think of themselves as a lender of last resort. On They will have anecdotal evidence of the businesses and mortgages that they write and how they're able to provide lending solutions to less, like more, I guess, a lot credit, a lot of high risk credits. And really, this comes from this ability is it doesn't really reflect their the strength and stability of their capital base because you know, somebody like Warren Buffett can be the lender of the last resort because number one like the reputational um, advantage that he has, but as well he he sits on a very large cash pile, so he's not dependent on raising money from outside investors or even keeping money within within a fund because he is effectively running a closed-end fund, realistically. So he has a very stable capital base, whereas these funds, they don't have a stable capital base, so you really can't be a, a lender of last resort unless you have an investor base that is very on board with this. And, and for example, like you've seen other private equity funds and venture capital funds that run a fund that will have a fixed duration, you know, whether it be 10 years, or even you're having some infinite uh and that that don't have a term so they realistically you know that you can't they don't have a defined ending term but you can still redeem at a certain price where really the fun at a, at a fundamental base i don't agree with gating these redemptions because really it's just the manager imposing their view of capital allocation onto an investor and uh, myself as the investor that's my job is is to allocate capital somebody else Taking that, taking that away from you as an investor really isn't good, isn't good. And it's something that investors really should be aware of when looking at funds. And, and so, yeah, really at the end of the day, I just fundamentally disagree with, uh, with gating redemptions and think it's a really poor practice from the industry. And that's not even to get into the volatility smoothing that they, that goes on in these funds where they're marking to mark, they're not marking to market, really just kind of using very, very rudimentary assumptions to uh, to go about their asset value. Yeah, exactly. So should investors be worried? Definitely. Uh, gating is a horrible, horrible sign. Clearly, the fund structure, it, it just doesn't make sense. You have this asset liability mismatch. If you're going to offer monthly redemption or whatever the frequency is, you better be damn sure you're owning assets that you can liquidate in time to honor that redemption. Or else... It's prone to disaster and blow up risk like we're seeing right now. So definitely be worried. Stay away from these types of funds. And what you mentioned, uh, what some of these funds are doing, basically, 
having the funds remain gated until they have more insight into the market or whatnot. Basically, they're saying, look, we're not going to disclose the NAV until asset prices go way up, way back up because they're way down right now. And we don't want to mark these big losses because then we'll look bad. So that's a really, really poor look. Imagine like we're running public funds. Imagine if there's a drawdown and we just say, look, uh, market stuff out there. We're just going to stop disclosing to you what it's worth. And we're going to pretend uh, that it's not down. And we're going to start marking it once uh, things recover. Like how would people... Would that be a great solution? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just uh, have everyone oblivious and uh, that'd be fine, right? But uh, I digress. We caution investors on private debt funds and private mortgage funds as this mark-to-model, these returns, mark-to-model returns tend to be artificially smooth and keep investors oblivious to the true underlying volatility, the true underlying risk, which is significant as we're seeing these days. Um, So the underlying net asset value here clearly is highly impaired and substantially lower what they're disclosing to investors. So be caution on these and if you got caught up, no, wish you luck. And uh, we see these lessons learned and investors just keep going back to it. But on to the next topic, which is Trump's art of the oil deal. What happened this week was a deal between OPEC members and other nations that faced significant hurdles. What they're trying to do is curtail oil production uh, in response really to the decimation of demand with respect to the coronavirus pandemic and resulting global economic recession. So OPEC members and a number of non-OPEC nations were in a week-long discussion to cut production. It hit a snag as Mexico balked at the required production reductions. President Trump stepped in, brokered a deal with Holdout Mexico such that the agreement could be completed. So they got a deal done with the help of President Trump. And what this deal represented was an unprecedented agreement to slash global oil production by nearly 10%. So that's nearly 10 million barrels per day, which is a ton. This deal caps a tumultuous time for crude prices as they've declined from over $60 per barrel where they started the year, which that price was kind of so-so. A lot of producers were struggling, especially North American shale oil producers were struggling at $60 per barrel. However, things have gotten much, much worse with this whole global recession as prices have hit $20 at the time of this crude oil production cut agreement. However, You would have thought a 10% cut would have done it. Apparently not, because prices kept going even lower after the deal got struck. They actually hit $18 today, which was their lowest price in nearly 20 years. So basically, no one's making money. There's just like a massive supply glut. Got a comment here from the oil analyst at Morgan Stanley. He stated, quote, the OPEC plus agreement will not prevent sharp inventory builds in coming months, and near-term oil prices in the physical market will likely remain under pressure. Oil prices were actually down on the news as the market expected as much as a 20 million barrel per day production cut. So the market was looking for something higher than this 10% production cut. The other thing to keep in mind, there's this massive, massive current oversupply. And this production cut deal doesn't come into effect until May 1st, which leaves a number of weeks for producing nations to significantly increase production and really just keep flooding the market for another two, three weeks here. What are your thoughts on this uh, unprecedented oil deal and the modest 
if I'd say disappointing reaction in the oil markets. Yeah, definitely disappointing uh, for for oil producers. But really, like over, with this, with the it's it was a two sided issue. Uh, there was a supply glut, um, but as well, this is there's two sides to the market, and the other the main issue is that there was a massive demand drop for for oils. So. That that hasn't been solved, and that's due to the coronavirus and overall economic activity decreasing uh, by such a large rate. Uh, so, because of this large demand drop, and as you had mentioned, that this doesn't come into effect until May first, is that there will continue to be large inventory builds. Um, so, there is some interesting plays in terms of shipping and storage. But no, this this really isn't going to fix the issue right now because, as as I mentioned, this is a mainly a demand side issue. As you had mentioned, Trump being the broker of this deal. Now, for people who have been following kind of uh, Trump's commentary on OPEC and oil prices in general, he's really just driven by political motivations. This was driven by a fear that, you know, these sustained oil prices could hurt his re-election prospects in oil producing states, which traditionally he has uh, controlled in terms of voting Republican. But if there was a prolonged stretch where people are losing their jobs in mass, and the view is that Trump has done nothing to come into this or to help the situation, uh, that obviously could cost him some votes and perhaps swing a couple of those uh, states. Now, really, you know, the, the the other aspect of this, so he gets the credit of brokering this deal while also not officially cutting American production. But because of the price movements, you're likely to see some production cuts uh, in the U.S., but not mandated by the government. That's just the free market doing its doing its own thing in terms of companies have been cutting their capex substantially. Yeah, and the thing um, about oil production, especially shale oil, it declines pretty dramatically. So if they stop drilling, then production falls off a cliff. And I and I believe that production has already fallen by a few hundred thousand barrels per day in the U.S. And it's really interesting dynamics because historically, uh, presidents would go to Saudi Arabia saying, get the oil price down, produce more. But now it's completely flip-flopped such that you know, over the past uh, year or so, the U.S. has become the largest oil producer in the world at about 13 million barrels per day. So they have a lot of economies that are reliant on oil production, specifically Texas which is one of, the, one of the largest states. And so that's something to consider and, and somewhat ironic where they used to want a uh, lower oil price and now the president is fighting for a higher oil price. Yeah, and just to add some context around uh, the declines in production is with these CapEx reductions is there's a certain amount of sustaining CapEx needed for any oil well. But in particular with shale drilling, with its hydraulic fracturing is typically the high pressure nature of those wells results in a really high decline rate looking at you know 30 or 40 percent so what that means is you need to increase your production by 30 or 40 percent a year just just to stay steady in terms of your base level of production so it's a really high decline rate in in those assets so without the without any 
continued investment into those fields, you will see just natural decline. Yeah, good point on that one. If we want to talk about something that's uh, a lot more positive and can generate hope for investors, and we really saw that in the markets today, um, the markets up two to three percent, largely on the back of this remdesivir news out of this uh, Gilead trial. So what happened here was it's a, a potential effective treatment uh, for COVID-19 that they're currently testing. Early data from a clinical trial indicates that Gilead's antiviral medicine, remdesivir, is having a beneficial effect on patients where they showed rapid improvements in fever and respiratory symptoms. Some details behind this clinical trial. The University of Chicago enrolled 125 people with COVID-19 into Gilead's phase three clinical trials, and nearly all patients recovered from the disease in less than one week. But uh, unfortunately, two patients died. However, that's significantly better than what could be expected under normal circumstances. After starting the drug, many patients saw their fevers reduced quickly. Some came off ventilators the very next day after starting this treatment, and most did not need the full course of 10-day of the treatment. A quote here from one of the patients that received the treatment. He indicated that uh, remdesivir was a miracle. Uh, He was a 57-year-old factory worker. So what exactly is remdesivir and, you know, how do they develop it so quickly? Well, it's actually been around for a while. They initially uh, developed it to fight uh, African Ebola a number of years ago. That was kind of around the 2013 timeframe. Gilead worked with the U.S. Army Medical Research Institute of Infectious Diseases and the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And the way remdesivir works is it jams the molecular machinery that some viruses use to build their genes as they replicate. So it pretty much halts the replication of this virus. And as they're developing it, uh, they, they were going through clinical trials against Ebola, but then that outbreak really fizzled out. So they, they didn't do much work, much more work on it. However, they're basically repurposing a drug, repurposing a, an Ebola, which is another virus, an Ebola treatment to work on COVID-19. And so far, I mean, it's early stage. We don't have full uh, data. This is really just a sneak peek. It was leaked from the trial. But I mean, it's looking quite positive, isn't it? Yeah, it certainly is. I, I guess I, I remain a little bit more cautious in, in my optimism right now. And I will preface that with the fact that um, both you or I are not, not experts in this field. Um, just, just We're just strictly looking at the numbers. Um, but it definitely is quite looking quite positive. Um, and you did see Gilead up 9.4% on the news today. So that's a positive. Um, but I will put it in the context of two out of the 113 patients with severe symptoms dying does imply a 1.8% fatality rate as well. And, but the, I guess the positive is, is that for the people that you know did not pass away, that they did actually fully recover. So it wasn't just you know keeping people alive; it was it was helping people fully recover. We will keep in mind that. This was 113 patients with severe symptoms. Uh, the full study of severe patients contains 2,400 patients. So this implies that less than 5% of the results have been released so far. And 
my assumption is that these are the most favorable results. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the remainder of the study shows as 113 patients likely isn't a uh, statistically significant enough sample size. But after this does run the, the full study, uh, it will be interesting to see how this evolves. And, um, you know, just as a human being, um, being, being as optimistic as possible with this, as this would be a absolutely massive in terms of getting us back to a, a more normal state of life as, as things may not go back to exactly how they were, um, maybe in some good ways and maybe in some bad ways as well. But, you know, this is one, one major step in the right direction to uh, continue on a positive. Yeah, certainly it provides hope not only for investors, but just in terms of society and, and, and getting back to the way things were. I actually wrote a bit about remdesivir about a month ago in a blog post. And my thoughts were at the time that investors should be hopeful that you never want to bet against human ingenuity. Uh, you got to be confident that we'll come up with a vaccine, we'll come up with effective treatments. There's, you know, tens of billions, if not hundreds of billions of dollars, uh, research dollars being spent. Really, you know, most health groups globally are strictly focused on COVID-19 and coming up with solutions. And we're starting to see the result of that. And so there's uh, remdesivir, there's hydroxychloroquine, there's going to be a number of various treatments coming up that are going to be proven to be effective. And over time, there will, I'm quite confident, there will be a vaccine as well. So that provides hope for investors and keep that in mind over the long term. This should be something that will be resolved. The other thing is, uh, on the other side of it, I caution investors, especially Especially if they're looking to try to, uh, you know, monetize this or or make some sort of investment play on Gilead, uh, you got to be concerned uh, with the stock up 10% today because I believe that they're not looking to commercialize this, not looking to build a business out of this. This would be more of a uh, um, just a, a thing for them to do for the good of humankind uh, to get this drug out there in the market. So they, I think they're pretty steadfast in their commitment to just getting this out in a cost-effective way. Not really a money-looking business. I do getting, have getting their expenses back. Basically, is is what the type of situation it would be. Yeah. So by not building a business, basically not looking to make it a profit center. So that's something to yeah. keep in mind. I got a quote, quote from Gilead. They indicated in a statement the totality of the data needed to be analyzed in order to draw any conclusions from the trial. They're really uh, offering a cautious statement, really saying that it's insufficient at this point to make any sort of judgments. The University of Chicago also stated that partial data from an ongoing clinical trial is by definition incomplete and should never be used to draw conclusions. Got a quote here from uh, RBC Capital Markets healthcare analyst. He indicated the anecdotal data looks promising on the surface and continues to support some potential for the drug to be active in certain COVID-19 patients. Nonetheless, there are patient, there are, sorry, there are major limitations to contextualizing and interpreting this data. So all the people involved are quite cautious so far. Um, it is looking good. However, it is early stage. So investors really need to take that caution. Uh, last thing we wanted to chat about, put out a blog post this week, really just a discussion of five reasons why merge arbitrage in a is a must-own investment strategy. And we've talked a lot about the, the opportunity set in merge arbitrage. And that's kind of the first reason to want to own it is the attractive yield. Historically, you'd earn kind of three to 500 basis points above cash. So earlier in this year, we 
we saw four to six percent average annualized yields or annualized returns for the average merger arbitrage spread in March. We saw that blow out to the uh, low 20 percent range. Now it's kind of in the low teen range, sort of 13 percent annualized, which is a pretty exceptional annualized return versus a lot of the alternatives out there. Uh, the second reason to consider merger arbitrage is the consistency of its return. We looked at data from JP Morgan that showed from 2009 to 2019 calendar years, it was one of the only asset classes that booked positive returns on average uh, over every single year. And even if you look at the global bond portfolio over those 11 years, global bonds had three down years. You had three global equity bear markets over that time period as well. The third reason to consider merger arb is its low interest rate exposure. This is basically referring to duration rate. Interest rates are at an all-time low, I think going back hundreds or perhaps thousands of years. Interest rates have never been lower. And if you own bonds and interest rates start to go up, bond prices move inversely to interest rates. So as interest rates go up, if and when they do, your bonds are going to get hit. So merger arbitrage is more of a floating rate exposure that can do well in a rising rate environment. On the fourth reason, the income or the returns that merger arbitrage produce, they're largely through capital gains as opposed to interest income commonly found in standard fixed income portfolios. So for Canadian investors, uh, these capital gains are taxed at half, are typically taxed at half the rate as a traditional fixed income uh, type interest payment. So there is uh, some pretty significant tax efficiency for taxable Canadian investors. And lastly, the fifth reason to consider merger arbitrage in your portfolio is basically an unprecedented opportunity where we've basically pounded the table in terms of the opportunity set being unprecedented. Uh, I referred to it last month as a generational buying opportunity where you're seeing you know, low risk spreads, low risk uh, investments priced to yield 10 to 15 percent annualized uh, and even trades that you could indicate nearly risk free and north of 5 percent annualized. So really list of five reasons to consider merger arbitrage. We're obviously big fans of it. Run the strategy, allocate personal dollars to the strategy, and really done it for a long time. So there's a number of reasons why it makes sense to have within the context of a diversified portfolio. It's really a standard strategy in all or most institutional portfolios. And it's something that I believe should be in every investor portfolio. You're talking about 60-40 equities and bonds. Well, you need to have some alternatives in there, such as merge arbitrage and some other alternative strategies as well. What were your thoughts on it? Yeah, like I, I'm obviously a big proponent of the merger arb strategy, and in terms of we've we've talked about it on the podcast a lot. But you know, this over the last month or two, well, month and a half here, it's really been a generational opportunity in this space. Now, one one area that sometimes is compa- is comparable um, in terms of some of the focus on yield, although the underlying d- dynamics are quite different, is that of preferred shares. So, how how would you compare if an investor is looking at a pref share opportunity versus a merger arb strategy? I have a pretty 
simple rule of thumb investing. And one of these rules is never invest in preferred shares. They are certainly uh, a misnomer, Uh, definitely not preferred in any way, shape or form. And here's why. They present fixed income upside with equity downside. And historically, the returns have been quite poor. They pretty much provide no protection in a down market. For example, I I read an article today that compared the fixed uh, sorry, the preferred share index with the equity index. The equity index was down 17% through mid-April, and the preferred share index was actually down 19%. So talk about non-preferred returns where they're actually doing worse than equities. And the, w- the way that preferred shares work, they typically get issued at $25 per share. You have no upside because if they start going up as interest rates go up, the issuers will just call them and issue new ones at a lower interest rate. So they basically have very little upside, huge downside. I've seen in restructurings, these get absolutely gutted far worse than the common shares. One I'm talking about there specifically was that of Yellow Pages, which went through a restructuring about 10 years ago. Oh, in addition to that, got to disclose that we are long Yellow Pages stock in one of our multi-factor funds. But nonetheless, uh, a lot of caution on preferred shares. I'd just recommend investors stay far, far away. Don't touch preferred shares with a 10-foot pole. They turn more often than not into absolute disasters. You get fixed income upside with equity downside, which is really a horrible value proposition for investors. In addition to uh, illiquidity, stay far away. There's really nothing good to be had out of preferred shares. If you're looking to to get that yield, look other places. Look at corporate bonds, government bonds, municipal bonds, uh, even junk bonds, high yield bonds. Look at uh, bank loan funds, uh, levered loan funds, or even alternatives like uh, merger arbitrage or other credit type strategies like that, other yield strategies. And going back to our earlier discussion, stay away from private debt and private mortgage funds too. So that's kind of a a stay away from list, a warning list for investors, preferred shares, private debt funds, and private mortgage funds. So that's all we got for you today on the Absolute Return podcast. If you enjoyed it, please check out more episodes at absolutereturnpodcast.com and definitely follow us on Twitter. Mike, what's your handle? M underscore Kessler. And you can find me on Twitter. I tweet quite a bit, uh, a lot of insights, a lot of market analysis, etc. I'm at Julian Klamochko, K-L-Y-M-O-C-H-K-O. And until next week, we wish you the best of luck in your investing and trading, and we'll chat with you soon. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained this podcast. Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.